y'all doing? Good. Well, hey, I just wanted to start out, introduce myself. I know some of you. I don't know most of you. Um, but my name is Caleb Thurman. I am... Yeah, that's the jump team. I do know the jump team. <laughs> um, I am one of the children's pastors here at Second Baptist. Been on staff a little bit more than two years. And you guys are going to find out a little bit more about me. As the night goes on, I'm going to tell some of my story. But I just think it's super important that you guys know that while I'm standing up here, that when Michael approached me about speaking at live, you know, I'd never done it before. I'm used to kids. I don't always speak to teenagers. Haven't done that in a very long time. So it's a little bit out of my comfort zone. But when he came to me and asked, I was more than honored and flattered and really excited to do it. And so at first, you know, I was like, okay, are y'all going to tell me what I should talk about? Or like, do I need to figure that out myself? And it was kind of like there was a plan and then there wasn't one. And so it was going to be on me. And not that I can't do that, but I'm not used to doing that. And so I was kind of like, okay, God, where is it that you want me to go? And for the first few weeks, I really felt like God was laying something on my heart, a word that was speaking to me and that I thought was going to speak to you guys as well. And then God has funny ways sometimes. And this past weekend on Saturday, which I'm going to tell that story in a minute, God kind of changed that direction. And he laid something on my heart that I haven't been able to shake ever since. And I truly believe that he has something to say to me and something to say to you through that. So I'm just going to pray for us as we get started, and then we're going to dive right in, okay? Uh, Father, we just thank you so much just for the opportunity to be here tonight. I thank you that you have provided us a platform just to speak your truth. Father, I pray that I would get out of the way that your name would be glorified and lifted here in this place, and that uh, we will go out of here different than we came in. So in your name we pray. Amen. So, last week, I was on vacation. And what vacation was for me, it was not going to the beach like it is for some people. Um, I am actually originally from Nashville, Tennessee. So my entire family is there, all of my friends from college, everyone I'd ever grown up with is in Tennessee. So when I take a vacation and get time off, that's usually where I go. Well, it was kind of a double blessing in disguise because my best friend from college also got married last weekend. And it happened in my hometown, so I was able to fly in and see family and do all these things. And so I don't know um, if any of you have ever seen the movie 27 Dresses. Yeah, a lot of the ladies have at least. Well, there's this running joke with pretty much anyone that knows me that I could make the guy version of that 27 tuxedos. Because I was in this wedding this past weekend, and I don't even, I think it was wedding 9 or 10 for me as a groomsman. I really don't, I, I know that's bad, but I would have to like sit and think and, and count through if I really wanted to know how many I've been in. You know, always the groomsman, never the groom, that type of deal. But I love being in weddings. They're such a joyous occasion, right? It's something to celebrate. And while we were there, um, we, we rehearsed. We did the whole walking in and walking out. And when we finished, we went into the reception hall, and we had dinner. And during dinner, the groom and the bride, they wanted everybody to kind of share stories and talk about happy memories that we had with them or just how we met them or just different stuff to kind of encourage them as they go. So we're telling funny stories. We're doing all this stuff. And then the bride, her name was Morgan. Her dad got on the microphone. And he started to talk to everyone, but specifically to Matt and Morgan about their marriage. And he was asking them, he was saying, everything he was asking started with, do you believe? And the first question he asked him, he said, do you believe in love? And of course, they're like, yeah, we believe in love. That's why we're getting married, right? Then he's like, okay, well, do you believe that it's going to be perfect all the time? And they're, of course, they're like, no, we know it's not. And so he's asking all these things. And at one point he says, do you believe in Jesus Christ? And of course, they're both believers. And they're like, yes, we absolutely believe in Jesus Christ. He's like, then you know. He, and he goes on. He's like, ultimately what his point was, he's saying, you know 
that ultimately Jesus is the only thing that can keep this marriage together, right? Y'all are fallen and, and sinful and all these things, and, and Jesus is worth believing in because he can hold everything together. So we move on. He kind of issues that challenge, and we go back to funny stories and doing all these things, and everybody just kind of forgets about it. But I didn't, okay? Those words penetrated me and stuck with me. Not about the marriage and all of that stuff, but everything he asked was, do you believe? Do you believe? So let's do a little exercise, okay? If I'm going to say some statements, and if you believe that it's true, I just want you to put your hand in the air, and then we're going to talk about it. The first one should be easy. Okay, uh, we are currently at Second Baptist Church. So unless you slept, walked in here for the first time, you know that you're at Second Baptist Church, right? Good, hands down. So we know that that's true. Okay, what if I told you that the country of Saudi Arabia, you know, you think of like deserts and all that kind of thing. What if I told you that their camels that they have, the majority of those are actually imported from Australia or Africa? Raise your hand if you think I'm telling the truth. Okay, only a few of you. That is actually true. That's a true statement. Okay, let me tell you another one. Uh, what if I said the planet Pluto, which apparently is not a planet anymore. I don't know. When I was in... When I was in school, it was a planet. But anyway, the Pluto, whatever it is, if you stretched it out and you took its surface area and you measured it, it would actually be smaller than the surface area of Russia. If I told you that that was true, what would you say? Who believes that? Yeah, well, that's also true. Okay, well, here's the last one. What if I told you, how many of you have an iPhone? What if I said that this phone in your hand, this iPhone, has more computing power than all of NASA in 1969 when we sent men to the moon? That this right here has more computing power than all of NASA together had in 1969. Who believes that's true? Yeah, y'all are catching on. That one is also true and a little crazy and freaked me out when I read that. Right? So some of you believed all the things I said. Some of you didn't. Some of you are pulling out those phones with all that computing power right now and Googling all the things I said to believe, see if I'm telling the truth or not, right? So there's things that we believe and sometimes we don't believe them. We're like, I don't know, that seems a little bit too far-fetched. Seems a little bit too crazy. But does our belief affect whether or not it's true? Absolutely not. If it's true, whether or not I believe it, it doesn't matter because it can stand alone. Truth is not dependent upon belief. Truth is truth. It stands alone. And there are things that we believe in all the time. We can tell ourselves that we believe in things. We can put our trust in things that may not necessarily be true, right? Sometimes we put too much belief in stuff that can't be true. Like if I was to sit here, stand up here and tell you that I believe with my entire heart that Peyton Manning has more Super Bowl rings than Tom Brady, like I believe it, I believe it with everything I have. If that's what I said, is that a true statement? No, sadly it's not. Okay, Tom Brady has more Super Bowl rings. I could stand up here and argue that Peyton Manning's a better quarterback, but still, that's an opinion, right? But at that point, I can believe those things, but it doesn't make it true. Just because I believe that Peyton Manning has more Super Bowl rings, it's a fact that he doesn't. Okay, I can believe that my parents are never going to get a divorce. Or I can believe that drugs or alcohol or bad language will get me accepted into a friend group at school or will make me more popular 
or will set me up in the long run. We'll do all these things, but that doesn't make it true just because I believe it. The incredible thing is what we're going to look at tonight is that there's only one thing, there's only one person that deserves complete belief, and that's Jesus. Because anything and everything of this world that we can put our trust into or we can try and believe in is going to let us down at some point. Even if it doesn't completely fall apart, even if it's a true fact, it's still not something we can place our hope in. Because the truth is, we live in a fallen, broken, sinful world. I'm just as broken and sinful as every single person in this room. But the glorious thing is, Jesus is deserving of our faith and deserving of our belief because he is truth. So I want to look tonight, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 9, verse 27 is where we're going to start. But I want to give a little bit of background. So at this point in Jesus' ministry, he's traveling around, he's been performing miracles, he's been doing these things, he's turned water into wine, he's healed people, he's taken food and fed thousands of people, he's done all these incredible things. And so some people are starting to follow him, some people are believing in him, but everyone is asking, who is this guy? Right, is he a prophet? Is he just a teacher? Is he really even doing those things? I'm just hearing it through somebody else, right? So some people believe that he is the son of God he's claiming to be, that he's this promised Messiah. Others don't believe. And so right before this, before we come in, there is a little girl that has died, and Jesus has raised her back to life. And so there's even more people that now believe in Jesus. Okay, we're going to start in verse 27. And it says, as Jesus went on from there, as he leaves this house, Two blind men followed him, calling out, have mercy on us, son of David. So they're saying, hey, Jesus, this guy that is doing all these crazy things, have mercy on us. And they call him son of David. Don't miss that. They call him son of David. And if you know Jesus, you know that his earthly father was Joseph, right? Not David. But it says in scripture that the promised Messiah was going to come from the line of David, and Jesus' earthly father, Joseph, did come from the line of David. So they're already saying, we believe in who you say you are. So have mercy on us. When he had gone indoors, when Jesus had gone indoors, the blind men came to him and he asked them, do you believe that I am able to do this? Do you believe that I am able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. So he touched their eyes and said, according to your faith, it will be done to you. And their sight was restored. So did it say because they had come? No, it wasn't just because they had followed Jesus. It was because of their belief in who Jesus was. It was in their belief that he could truly help them. That he could truly save them. That he could truly change their lives. So they've now had this encounter with Jesus, and we see that Jesus then says, he warns them, and he says, see that no one knows of this. Now that may seem a little bizarre, but just as so many people were believing in Jesus and believing what he was doing and believing that he is who he says he is, on the other hand, there's a lot of people that didn't believe that. And there were a lot of people that were unhappy with Jesus and didn't like what he was teaching and didn't like what he was doing. And because of that, that's what happens later on, that's what plays out later on with the arrest and the crucifixion and all these things. So Jesus' time hasn't come yet. And so he's not trying to draw a bunch of attention to himself. Right? He's just trying to do the task that's in front of him that, that God has set out for him. And so he heals these two blind men. 
But he's like, hey, don't, I'm so glad you're healed, but don't go and tell everybody just yet. But watch what happens. The very next verse says, uh, well, says, but they went out and spread the news about him all over the nation. So literally, Jesus said, don't go tell anyone. The very next verse says, they went out and told everybody. Why do you think that is? Jesus, the son of God, the guy that just told them not to do this, the guy that just saved them, healed them physically, tells them, don't go tell anybody. I think I'd listen to him. Maybe. Probably not. The reason they didn't listen and they went and told everybody was because they had had an encounter with Jesus. They weren't the same when they left that house as when they went in. And I don't just mean physically. It wasn't just that they could see physically. It meant that Jesus had touched their lives in a way that no one else could. In a way that nothing else could. And so they wanted to tell the entire world. Let me tell you a secret. When Jesus changes your life and you truly believe in him and that belief becomes real to you, it changes your life. It changes your life. You're not the same person anymore. You're not kind of like, well, I'm sort of a Christian. Jesus, he's kind of okay. He's like, he's cool and all. No, it changes your life. You want everybody to know about this life change because you want it for them too. If it's truly gotten a hold of you. All those other things don't matter anymore. It goes away in Galatians, in chapter 2, it says that it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So it's no longer what we want to do anymore. It's all about what Jesus wants for us and what Jesus wants for our life. I want to tell you a story about myself. Okay, so like many of you, and maybe unlike some of you, I was raised in a Christian home. I was raised in church. I was there every single Sunday, every single Wednesday. So from the very beginning of my life, scripture was being poured into me, truth was being spoken to me, and I had all this knowledge as to who Jesus was. It was a part of everything that I did, everything that my family did, and I'm so incredibly grateful for that. And so as I'm, I'm growing up and I'm hearing this truth and I'm going to BBS and I'm going to church and I go to youth group and I'm doing all these things, there was still this, this moment that I hadn't had yet where I truly believed all of the things that were being sp preached and spoken and taught to me. And that I had all this knowledge, but there wasn't a belief. It was just that. It was just knowledge at that point. So for me, you know, I'm like, I'd never really face it. You don't face a lot of adversity in elementary school, right? Other than like you show up, you buy your lunch on pizza day, and then they change it to like mystery meat, you know, like the, the day of, and you're like, okay, well, I should have packed my lunch today, right? That's about the biggest adversity. Or you like don't get to go to recess because it's raining outside, right? But as you go into like middle school and high school, you, you start to face a little bit more adversity, and some people do. Some people deal with really big tragedies. Maybe it's in their family or personally, but for me, I didn't. Okay, everything was great for me. It was wonderful. I never had to face any adversity, never had to face any change, none of those things. So as I approach my senior year of high school, it's that time where it's like, hey, now we got to figure out where we're going to go to college, right? What's the step after high school for me? Well, a little bit of background. I lived in the same house from the time I was born until the time I turned, or I was 18, until I was a senior. Never moved. Okay? I went to the same school system, 
for kindergarten through 12th grade for those 13 years with the same people. I went to the same church, a very small church, for the entire 18 years. My mom had grown up in that church. My grandfather had grown up in that church. And my great-grandfather helped physically build that church, right? So I was very engrossed in what was happening right there in my little bubble. And I had never had to deal with any type of change ever. But when you graduate high school, there's a lot of change that happens all at once. All of that stuff that's been there goes away. And for me, that was really scary. I didn't know how to deal with that. And you see, the, the, the truth was, I was trying to fix all of those things. I was trying to handle all of those things on my own. I thought that I could take care of every single thing. Well, that didn't work out very well. As my senior year approached, I started dealing with anxiety. I started dealing with fear, crippling fear. To, almost to the point of depression at one point, of just not wanting things to change. It was the fear of the unknown. The fear of how I, it's, all this stuff is uncontrollable. I, Caleb, can't control it, and I don't like it. And I never had to deal with that before. And so I was very far from God at this point in my life. I didn't even want to be at church. I didn't want to talk to the youth pastor. I didn't want anything to do with it because my life was changing, and there was nothing I could do. So fast forward to the spring semester of my senior year. I've already applied to school. I've gotten accepted to the University of Tennessee, which is the real UT for all you Longhorns out there. We were established first, but anyway. So that's where I was going to go. It was about two and a half hours from my house, but I was super pumped. I was like, this is where I want to go, except that it's two and a half hours from my house, right? Because that was the only thing I had ever known. So it was about February or March of that year, and there was a time where uh, we, there was this big youth conference happening in Nashville, and my youth pastor had me a ticket, and I didn't want to go because I didn't want anything to do with church. And he insisted that I go. My sister insisted that I go. And so I went. There was a cute girl going. I got to sit beside her all night. I was like, that's great. Count me in. So we go. We sit down. We go through the worship set like normal, like you do at any worship event or conference or whatever. And then the pastor gets up there. And some of you may have heard of him. His name is Clayton King. He's a pastor in North Carolina. But he was the speaker that night for our youth conference. And that night, he started to speak on belief. And he started to talk about how with the early church and where, where Jesus established Christianity, you know, it was a new thing. It started to sweep the world, but it was a new thing. And the Roman emperor at the time, he was the king of the world in all ways. They had the most money. They had the most, they had all those things. And so he didn't like that other people were calling this Jesus guy the king. And this is even, I'm talking about after Jesus has already died been buried, and been resurrected, and then gone back to heaven, right? So now it's his disciples and the rest of the early church that are having to spread the word of Jesus Christ. Not having to, but getting to. And so these Romans and their officials and different people are going around, and when they encounter Christians or they encounter people that don't believe what they believe, they're asking them, do you believe in Jesus Christ? Or they're asking, you need to say, hell, Caesar, because he is the only one worthy of your worship, right? He's the one here on earth that's ruling everything. And if you refuse to do that, you're either thrown in prison or you were killed. And so these people of the early church were facing this major persecution for their belief in Jesus. Now for me at that point in my life, 
right? And for most of you here in this room, you've grown up in a country where we have had the opportunity to, I get the opportunity to stand up here freely. And some of those things are, are we see that our country's starting to shift a little bit, but we have not ever had to face the persecution to the level of people from the very early beginning of the church that they've had to face. A lot of us will never, praise the Lord, never have to know what that looks like. But that night, as Clayton was bringing that word, and he was talking about these people, and he said, they were sold out for Jesus Christ. It wasn't just that they had knowledge. It wasn't just that they came and they sat in a chair every single week with the same people, beside the same people, hearing this word. It wasn't just that they were hearing it and they were getting it up here and they were hanging out with Christian friends and they were doing all these things. It's that they believed in who Jesus was and that he had truly changed their life. So he goes into a time of invitation and he starts saying, there are people here tonight, maybe you've made a decision before, maybe you haven't, all these things. And he's like, but there are people in this room that need to make a decision right now to say, I believe in Jesus Christ. And that was the night that I gave my life to Christ. That I said, Jesus, whatever you want for me, that's what I want. That I believe in who you say you are. You look back in scripture, especially in the gospels when we're talking about Jesus' life, and there's example after example, dozens and hundreds of them, of Jesus asking people, asking his disciples if you believe. When Jesus fed the 5,000, it was really more than that because that was just the men. But when he took those few fish and loaves of bread and fed those thousands and thousands of people, at the end of that passage, if you look, it says, many followed Jesus and believed. When you look in Mark and when we talk about Jesus and his friend Lazarus who had fallen asleep and then he later dies, and Jesus waited two days before he went to see him, his disciples were like, why didn't we already go? Why are we waiting? He's sick. You can heal him. And Jesus said, this is happening so that you might believe. His disciples, the ones that were traveling with him everywhere, they saw everything firsthand of what Jesus did. And he still was telling them, I need you to believe. It's not just seeing what I'm doing. It's not just watching me. It's believing in this. We see again, there's a dad who his child is demon-possessed. And Jesus comes to him and he says, if you believe, then this is possible. For those that believe, anything is possible. And the man says, yes, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. Jesus, help me to believe. Jesus chooses to heal that child. And in the most probably most popular quoted verse of all time, John 3, 16, it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should have everlasting life. It's not about for those that hear Jesus' name, it's not about those who come to Sunday school, those who come to live, those who go to beach retreat, it's those who believe in who Jesus is. That is who is saved. 